Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Restart. Be Real is brought to you by Converse College Low Residency MFA. Their two-year program features biannual residencies that nurture writers of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and young adults, guiding them from first draft to publication. Converse has launched emerging writers like memoirist Sunel Barnes, novelist Sonia Condit, and award-winning poet Lisa Hayes Jackson. Visit www.converse.edu slash MFA for more information. Converse College Low Residency MFA. Your next book lives here. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real. It is a genre-hopping, movie-reviewing, and reappraising podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solem pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard. And every other week or so, we gather to talk about three movies linked by a common theme. And our theme this week is a fantastic actor uh, whose birthday is January the 30th. Yes, if you were wondering, birthdays are enough of an editorial hook for us to uh, watch movies. Most anything is... We're talking about the work of Gene Hackman, and Noah, I have an unofficial title for this episode. We're talking about the work of, frankly, mean Gene Hackman. I like that. Mean Gene. He's got so many that we needed to find a way to wrap our arms around it a little bit more, because like the work of Gene Hackman is half the 20th century. So anyway, do you like, you have a warmness for Gene Hackman, do you not? I believe we share a warmness for Gene. Do I? Have we had that conversation? Or maybe I'm confusing you with me, which tends to happen sometimes on this podcast. It's the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. I do the same thing sometimes where I'll like tell you a joke in my head and you'll laugh and then I'll laugh too. And yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and you'll listen Whatever. back to the recording and be like, did you edit out all the laughter in my jokes? <laughs> like That no. one episode you did edit out all the laughter I to assure my you jokes. That's not true. Sir. And it made it sound really awkward. It's like a sitcom without the laugh track. So no, you don't feel particularly warm toward Gene? I think that Gene Hackman, like any great actor uh, of his generation, has served, like in the back half of it, I would say anything from like the late 90s to when he gave up acting in 2004's Welcome to Mooseport, he kind of like falls into some tropes that maybe he lays out like in some of the movies we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah, so, he's, he's a long enough filmography that, like, you can go into these, like, four-year pockets and be like, I've never heard of any of those. Um, right. Or, like, you accidentally caught Uncommon Valor one time, and you're like, well, that's not good. That's just somebody being like, hey, Gene, can you play, uh, you play Mean Army Guy uh, again? And he's like, "Do you to what end? Do you want it to be for good or bad? I'm like, uh, in this case, good. I'm like, great. I'll turn the dial to good army man. There's a lot of overlap, too, in, like, crappy decisions with one Al Pacino, who's really only difference from Gene Hackman is that he didn't retire in 2004. (laughs) Uh But I mean, you can even see it like 
in the replacements where what year was like uh every any given sunday i think that's 2002 2002 same time it's like i better play a coach right let me return to the success of hoosiers yeah and let me play a coach and nobody told them that it was going to be keanu reeves uh carrying that literal football across the goal line well, you're a tough sell, Noah Ballard, but mostly I think we're here to talk about why Gene is good. So we will focus a lot on, like, you know, three main titles for today to, for Gene Hackman uh, antagonists are Superman, 1978, Unforgiven, 1992, and The Firm, which I think is also 1992? That's, um, uh, I have it as 93 here. 93, all right, sorry. Um, but at the front here, we're going to shout out some others that we've uh, that either didn't quite make the cut or that we've talked about uh, in full, and you can find those on berealpodcast.com. Um, but yeah, man, he's got a, a long and and great career, and at least like fifteen or twenty really good performances. So hopefully, we'll cover some of those today. Um, I guess I would say I tend to think of him as having being analogous to someone like robert duvall but he has a couple more moves i think than like duvall or tommy lee jones like if you've seen night him, moves is that what he has yeah perhaps some night moves. <laughs> i really think of adam driver as kind of analogous to like young gene hackman because first of all they were both in the marines so that's what got me thinking about this they both came out of the marine corps um and they're both sort of like if you see them interviewed they're kind of uncomfortable in their own skin Um, But like yet if you go to the parts there is like this willingness to do almost anything that the part asks for in terms of like unexpected comedy or freak outs or like very gifted understatement at times even though they're like usually playing like pretty strong burly dudes. I tend to think of those two as connected. I like that reference point. Um, I think Gene Hackman is also really good at being a very like funny straight man. Yes. You know, I mean, it serves him in, like, The Birdcage. Mm-hmm. It serves him in a lot of these movies we're talking about today, especially The Firm, which is an otherwise pretty dark film that Gene Hackman brings, like, a rules-don't-apply comedy sense to. I think sure. he even says, like, you know, I'm allowed my little indiscretions or whatever. This Bombay Martini. <laughs> yeah. But I think he's really good at bringing that, like, unexpected thing to very tropey characters. So whether it's like the deadbeat father of Royal Tenenbaums, whether it's any of the military and or Western like tough guys that he's played, there's always like another wrinkle of something else beneath that sort of tough guy thing that like really sets him apart from, especially if he's playing against like Clint Eastwood or something who is more or less one note uh, acting wise. It's really like a, the harmony between such a layered performance almost makes Clint Eastwood better just by comparison. So very good actor. Happy birthday, Gene. As you said, he retired in 2004. Uh, the, the latest that I can find from him was from a December 2018 men's journal article about how he bought an electronic bicycle in New Mexico and was just riding around. <laughs> so I think he's living his best life. What's an electronic bicycle? A bicycle that you pedal, but that also has like a motor powered by, I don't know uh acting (laughs) anyway so let's move forward a little bit can we talk about our top three antagonistic gene hackman moments have you ever been poughkeepsie you've been to poughkeepsie haven't you i want to hear it come on yes yes you've been there right yeah yeah. you sat on the edge of the bed didn't you you took off your shoes put your finger between your toes and pick your feet didn't you that's it yes 
All right. You want to start, buddy? Sure. I want to talk about a very ridiculous movie that is Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead from 1995. Um, you go nuts for that movie, don't you? I feel like I do not, but I do talk about it a lot, which is a... I see where you're coming from. In fact... The- I find that movie pretty indistinguishable from Tombstone, if we're being honest, which you just like... That's just your favorite. That is my favorite. Uh, if you watch The Quick and the Dead, uh, I feel like the Ramiisms should distinguish it pretty quickly. Because in that movie, he plays like a very evil Western land baron. He's like little Bill Daggett, but with like no nuance or layering whatsoever. And he's so evil, in fact, at one point, and we'll talk about this with Superman and his willingness to go campy if necessary. At one point in a flashback, I'm sorry to spoil a flashback here, but like he makes Sharon Stone, who comes to the town to win the gunfight, like try to shoot like an apple off her dad's head while he's being hung. Do you remember this? I do. And she shoots Gary Sinise through the brain and Gene Hackman goes, close enough. Isn't she shooting the rope? Because that's like the only thing that'll save him and the gunshot itself will make like the horse he's sitting on like ride away. That's right. Isn't that the point? That's right. But I'm remember. I'm just want to shout out that Gene Hackman cackle in Close Enough, which is like the most comically evil thing. Perhaps that's in his funny. entire over. Uh, just hold the gun in both hands. Pull the hammer back. I can't. You can't. <laughs> you can do it. I really like the 1997 movie. No, I don't really like it. It's a terrible movie. Yeah, but I really like the example of 1997's Absolute Power in which Gene Hackman plays the President of the United States who in the opening scene is witnessed by Clint Eastwood, a an unlikely cat burglar, uh, mur- raping and murdering his, like, biggest campaign financers like young wife wow and then the rest of the movie is like clint eastwood trying to reveal that gene hackman is a murderer because like he's being blamed because he left something there that ties him to the crime even though he just witnessed it anyway and one of clint eastwood's like more pokey moments he sends this necklace that is worn by the woman who was killed that night that he picked up to the chief of staff of Gene Hackman's president, Richmond. And she thinks it's a gift from him. So she wears it to this gala and at the gala, the Gene Hackman realizes what's going on. And he like pulls her under the dance floor and he's like, don't you realize my darling, uh, you're wearing the necklace of this woman that I raped and murdered in the opening scene. And it's a pretty strange, but he's like just laughing and like having a good time, but he's fucking furious. So maybe we've shouted out like two of his most like absurd villainous things in the first two here. I want to move to uh, another Hackman John Grisham team up, um, a movie that I really loved as a kid. I feel like John Grisham movies for people our age were like a really great gateway into like serious acting because you would get these really good actors in them who would, you know, chew the scenery of the of the grandstanding courtroom drama or courtroom thriller. Um, and that's exactly what happens in a scene where uh, these two like warring jury consultants, Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman, like go in this bathroom. And basically in one minute, Gene Hackman says what it takes the 
Dick Cheney movie Vice two and a half hours to say. You think this jury cares anything about negligent distribution, product liability? You bet your uh, ass. Most of them can't even say the words, let alone understand the meaning. You think your average juror is King Solomon? No. He's a roofer with a mortgage. He wants to go home and sit in his Barca lounge and let the cable TV wash over him. And this man doesn't give a single solitary drop about truth, justice, or your American way. That's funny. And that's Runaway Jury. Did you say the title of the film? Maybe I did not. Jesus. Runaway Jury. That's Runaway Jury. (laughs) Yeah. That was a runaway explanation on my part. What do you got? That was great. I I like in Crimson Tide, where at one point when uh, Denzel Washington is attempting to make his case for why he should be the captain and why Gene Hackman is not qualified, nor should he be the captain in this high-stakes nuclear situation. And in the middle of like a pretty dramatic couple of lines, Gene Hackman just screams, shut the fuck up at the top of his lungs. It's really good. And they've been playing like such a building chess game to that point, And you're really wondering like, he just who smacks the board out of the way. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Who's going to blow the stack? It is Hackman. We can play these games all night, Mr. Hunter, but I don't have the luxury of your presumptions. Sir. Mr. Hunter. We have rules that are not open to interpretation, personal intuition, gut feelings, hairs on the back of your neck, little devils or angels sitting on your shoulders. We're all very well aware of what our orders are and what those orders mean. They come down from our commander-in-chief. They contain no ambiguity. Mr. Hunter, I've made a decision. I'm captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up! Uh, and then I think we're going to talk about a movie that we've reviewed, you know, for like a half an hour on the show. So if you want to hear us talk about Royal Tenenbaums, dive back into the archives. But this is like a great, interesting Gene Hackman antagonist because he's definitely like not a great man in this movie. Um, but he's such an interesting Wes Anderson character, like a, like an actor outsizing a Wes Anderson movie is not something that's really happened in years because like Wes doesn't really allow it to. But at this time, somebody of a prior generation still could. I will forever love the scene, which is the acting equivalent of like trying to hit an undo button on real life where he, uh, Royal Tenenbaum, confesses to his ex-wife, Ethelene, that he's dying then becomes so uncomfortable with her sympathy. He goes, I'm not dying. She slaps him and walks away down the street and he goes, Ethel, honey, I am dying. (laughs) (laughs) I think my other one also comes from Royal Tenenbaums where in this funny flashback, uh, Royal, who's the father (laughs) of uh, Chaz, Ben Stiller. Royal, who's the father of Chaz, played by Ben Stiller. They're in a game of like, I don't know. They're just like shooting BB guns at each other. And Royal at one point turns his BB gun on Chaz. And Chaz goes like, what are you doing? I'm on your team. And Royal shoots him in in the hand and like the BB still in his hand in the future and shouts, there are no teams. (laughs) Hold it, Chazzy. Hold it right there. What are you doing? You're on my team. <laughs> there are no teams. I was listening to a, a video clip with Wes um, where he talked about how Hackman didn't really want to do the movie because he never wanted anyone to write parts for him. Like, that's not something... He never wanted a writer or director's, like, idea of Gene Hackman, the actor, to... Um, to come ahead of his performance. But Wes went ahead and did it anyway. And to such interesting results because he never... I'm not sure he's ever played a character whose just like destruction 
and Salvation was like mischievousness ever. Like Royal Tenenbaum is such a standalone character in that filmography. Certainly. I agree with that. All right. So that's the quick list. If you want to tell us, by the way, um, you know, fans of the Playlist Podcast Network about your favorite Gene Hackman performances, shout them out. Hop on Twitter. Uh, yeah. What's your be- What's your favorite Gene Hackman antagonism yeah. moment? Um, but right now we're going to get into three big ones. Okay. Do you want to talk about 1978 Superman to start? That seems like the logical place to begin. Okay. So this, uh, of course, was billed as, what, Superman the movie when it came out in 1978. Superman colon the movie. Yeah, not something that really happens anymore. Richard Donner, and written by the Godfather's Mario Puzo. Uh, We were talking before, do you think that was like a handcuffed deal with Brando, who, of course, plays uh, Superman's pops? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea how that came to be. I watched this movie with my mother over the weekend. Yeah. And she, we were both kind of like, with, there's this interminable <laughs> opening oh title it sequence. It might be the longest opening title sequence for a movie we've done on the show. It's definitely the worst. It's definitely so the most memorable, definitely bad, bad, mm. the title sequence. Um, but by the time we get to the end, 20 minutes in, it says Mario Puzo wrote the script along with like seven other people. Right. Uh, and it's like Mario Puzo. This guy wrote The Godfather in a series of like pretty acclaimed like crime novels. Like what's Superman the movie? I'm pretty sure he uh gets credit for uh has a credit on Superman 2 as well. That's so interesting. So yeah, of course Christopher Reeve plays Superman and this is a very um you know, if you know the reputation of this movie, it is uh wide-eyed, optimistic America loving, maybe Christ loving <laughs> Superman uh adaptation at a time well before I mean we were talking about uh talking about M. Night Shyamalan and like even some Burton stuff last week, but you know, we're still fifteen years ahead of that. Um Certainly. And didn't you feel like this movie too like really makes an impression on like what all Superman's and all the Superman sequels are going to be like. I think so. I felt like re-watching this one, I was suddenly like, oh, that's why Brian Singer did that stupid thing in Superman Returns. Sure, sure. Or like, oh, that's why Zack Snyder like had to, General Zod had to make an appearance. Right. Like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I When I was thinking, I think that's true. But then I was thinking about like what movies this is like really comparable to and much more so than 21st century superhero stuff. It's like, it's Star Wars, Poseidon Adventure, Jaws. It's the blockbusters of the day in terms of like what people have patience for, how you draw a broad character, and how you do what I what I think they thought were top notch special effects in the seventies. Um, so they're not bad. Um, uh, let's. They're not good, <laughs> but they're not like they're not laughable. They're not like Sharknado. No, that's true. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel. All this and more, I I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you. But let me ask you this. Yeah, buddy. The thing crashes. So his little crystal spaceship like melts in trajectory and reorbiting. And these two people without children are driving down the road and they see this thing lands. And they're like, what the hell was that? Right. And they look over and it's a little boy. 
and they're like, we've been praying for a little boy. This is it. And there's That's no right. like, what about child services? Like, what about telling anyone about this? And they like, you don't quickly have social come up, services in Kansas. That's right. And they quickly come up with this story that they tell themselves too about like, we'll just say it's our, the son of our cousins from North Dakota and we have him now. And then he like yeah. lifts up the car and they're sold. Sure. Yeah. And and then they impart some, I guess, like good down home American wisdom on him. But I don't know that like their relationship makes a ton of sense because he Clark Kent knows that he's adopted. Yeah. There's no part where he's like, you never told me. And he like flies up into the orbit or whatever. Right. Yeah, they're a lot like, I was going to say they're definitely like the Mary and Joseph characters of the story, and they are, except for like that critical thing where it's like, yeah, he knows he's adopted, and like the football team gives him some trouble, and then, but he's perfectly happy to race the train home and help Pa. I like the stuff that happens in Smallville. I hadn't watched this movie since I was a little kid. I will say the heart attack. And a lot of it is Smallville. The heart attack is very um, affecting. When, it is. when I saw it, well, you know, he just grabs his arm and he goes, oh, no. Like, it reminded me. <laughs> I was like, I watched this when I was nine. And I think this is what I learned that that's like a heart attack thing from. Um, that, yeah, that was somewhere like deep within me. It's a very sad moment where he realizes like what he's going to miss. Yeah. Yeah. You can like see the what his, the sadness of missing his son grow up. I wasn't totally sure why Christopher Reeve couldn't play teenage Superman, though, because that other guy was not doing it for me. I like the little baby who, like, lifts up the car. Yeah. No, Chris doesn't have to play little baby, but, like, the right. teenager in the real bad wig, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And then he, like, flies off to the Forges of Solitude or whatever. Right. And he spends years there. What another piece of, like, weird mythology is, like, he was hanging out in the North Pole for, like, ten years. Yeah, yeah. So there's, like, so much stuff that, like, makes sense, like, in a linear, like, Journey of Superman way, but, like, not in a movie way, like, arriving in, you know, arriving in Metropolis, getting the job at the Daily Planet because of his uh, evocative, punchy prose, which, like, where did he learn to do that? Um, (laughs) But then he just, like, was it his plan to, like, debut Superman that day on the world after getting hired? Who knows? He does like 20 Superman things that day. And it's just like, yep, this is the day I wanted to do Superman. I've been thinking about this day. I've been hoping for a helicopter with my love interest to like crash into the side of this building so I could just Superman the hell out of today. Yeah. And then I'll just just wear his cape. He just happened to be wearing his cape. Going for it. You know, I don't think people ask questions of this movie like that, that in retrospect, are like, what's going on here? Well, I think the weirdest thing about this movie is that we watched it because of the iconic uh, Gene Hackman performance for Lex Luthor, who is not Iconic. in the first hour of the movie. <laughs> right, right. How are we to know? Uh, let's talk about Lex Luthor, though. Um, notice how I said Luthor just now, but as I texted you before, Ned, yeah, Ned Beatty is just like, Luthor? <laughs> his primary character choice is to remind you how Luthor is spelled. And <laughs> not remind you tuck that his an... tie into his jacket. Yes, it is an O, not an E, and do not tuck the tie. Um, but like, boy, is it, it is, uh, it's Adam West Batman campy. How? Oh my God. Yeah. It's like Danny DeVito in the second Batman. (laughs) I'm not sure it's as like dark as all that. It reminded me more of like, uh, you know, Frank Gould or, uh, sure. Um, 
uh, Romero, whoever played the Joker, or like Burgess Meredith played. Like, there's a point where he go, you know, he's sort of like sashaying around his lair, which is like subterranean Grand Central Station or something. Yeah, I guess it's. I don't. I was trying to figure that out too, because like he made a pool, but there's also like things going and there's all that stuff and electricity down there but so it's like maybe part of grand central but it's they keep saying he's 200 feet below ground it's like when was grand central station like a wing of it below ground yeah what would the point of that have been uh but you know he's practically sashaying around the lair talking to miss tessmacher uh monologuing and saying uh how could someone as fiendishly gifted as i not like receive credit or something like that and like when you're chewing on fiendishly gifted man you're going pretty arch and he's not afraid to go arch here how do you choose to congratulate the greatest criminal mind of our time huh Huh? you tell me that i'm brilliant oh no 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 that would be too obvious i I grant you charismatic fiendishly gifted uh... (laughs) try twisted (laughs) he's not afraid to go arch and i just frankly don't think it makes a lot of sense that he goes arch, which I think makes this movie somewhat ridiculous in that, I mean, just as you were saying before, like Superman plans this one day to like be Superman. And then he reads about it. Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. And he's like, well, we have to kill him. (laughs) Have you heard about that rock that crashed into, uh, where is it? Addis Ababa. Oh yeah. The Ethiopian capital. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And they're like, well, let's go there and we'll get the kryptonite and that'll kill him because that makes sense. And then they like invite him over and they're like, put on this necklace. And he's like, oh, no, kryptonite, which he (laughs) somehow realizes hurts him. It doesn't take him any time to be like, why do I feel so woozy? Because he was holding kryptonite. Wasn't he earlier when he like made the Forges of Solitude? That was mine. I know all the mythology, so I can like fill in the holes here. Yeah. But if you are coming to this with like no working knowledge of Superman, I don't think any of this movie makes sense. And then because Gene Hackman is so like riffy on it, it's like, what do we do? Like, what movie are we in? It's like very odd and long. I would. It's quite long. I would like to give one final prop though to the sort of bizarre aside where they're like having like hawaiian night in the underground grand central like when lex luthor is swimming but then there's all of a sudden like everyone is wearing like stereotypical discount rack like hawaiian shirts and it's like do you guys have theme nights like just the three of you like what is going on down here which i think other theme nights is something what about like roman night would be fun for them um, and he could compare himself to Caesar. That would lend itself to Yeah, things. they could be wearing some togas while they try to take over the world. That's right. Just the three of them. That's what I understand about Lex <laughs> Luthor as a character, is that like he has, all this, he has all this money and all this influence and clearly all this connection, but he's living so underground as to almost like not be known. And then there's like that scene where they like, when they inevitably spoiler get caught at the end, he's like, I'm Lex Luthor, you know, I'm the best criminal there is. And they're like, we don't know who you are, but he's clearly has enough money to like furnish all of these, not only schemes to ruin the world, but also like to have enough of a corporate structure that they have Hawaiian night. You're right. You're right. I personally, though, I'm fine with anything that pushes him away from Jesse Eisenberg, Lex Luthor. So this is fine. Sure. Stay in the hole for all I care. Um, Let's talk about 
one of the things I do like about this movie, there because there are some things, um, is I like that it acknowledges that Superman is hot and that Christopher Reeve is hot and that everybody likes him. Um, yeah, Christopher Reeve is very good looking. He is, um, and he like has a real like physicality to him at a time when the movie didn't feel. Um, the need to emphasize that nearly as much as say like Zack Snyder um, is almost like in a partnership with Henry Cavill to show how much Henry Cavill worked out before the movie. Um, Christopher Reeve is a big guy. um, And I like that, you know, Lois is kind of like, uh, you know, very smitten with him and like men and women all over the place are pretty smitten with Superman. I'll buy. Have you ever seen him in noises off? No, that's such a funny movie. I don't know that movie. It's uh, like a movie about a play and they're like putting on a play and his thing is like he's this tough like strapping guy but anytime he sees blood he like just pa- uh, passes out right away. He's, funny. He has like a he has some good bits. I think that one of the funny things is like he, playing the exaggerated Midwesterner whose reaction to anything that happens in a city is like apologetic surprise. Or, like an elevator opened like oh I'm sorry. <laughs> like yeah, what do you think elevators do Clark? Right. And he also was like a very good physical performance because he like yeah. he knows when to like do the fists above his head to like take off, you That's know. And fly, he's, brother. He, but he seems like aware of like his body in that space in a way mm-hmm. that I think other Supermans, the Brandon Ruths of the world, uh, just like didn't quite nail. I gotta say, man, the Marlon Brando stuff was like kind of ethereal and boring because i didn't really think brando himself was very into it um i think the editing of like the final calamity is pretty good like when he starts donner starts to use miniatures but i thought that like the debut of superman is where the it just didn't it doesn't look great and i even called 70s expert kathleen sola my mother to be like hey mom were people uh, really impressed with the look of superman when it came out and she said no we liked jaws we liked star wars we thought superman was fine and i was like great i'll say that on the podcast mom <laughs> yeah this movie is just fine yeah it's yeah it's it's a lot of like bored people and then like a lot of people like the real energy in the movie is uh, Christopher Reeve and Lois Lane, played by Margot Kidder, right? Who I don't know from anything else. She didn't and, do a whole lot else, and they've got good chemistry. So yeah, we'll cut in the rating clip in a second here, just in case anyone uh, doesn't know how we rate movies. It's an easy movie to kind of be like, oh, all right, and like a hard movie to be mad at. But ultimately, let's let's get into the explanations real quick. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good, good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad, bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. 
bad, bad movies make Chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. Ultimately, and maybe like this is just a little bit of... I don't know, trying to be interesting on our show or being honest. Like, I think this is a bad, bad. Like, it's just... It you think it's a bad, bad? I'm going to say bad, bad, man. I think it's really long. Uh, like we've it's talked so about. It's so long. The logic doesn't make a lot of sense. It requires a lot of patience for mythos that doesn't matter that much. Like, once you get into the middle of the movie, I'm going to give it a bad, bad. I just, like, wasn't feeling it. I'm not upset, but, like, that's a not feeling it for me. I enjoyed watching it, I, I'll say. Um, I think it's a poorly made movie, though. Yeah. So I think it's like, it's just bad good enough to be bad good. Fair enough. Our next Mean Gene Hackman performance, 1992's Unforgiven, uh, which was an Oscar winner that year. Uh, Slowest movie. <laughs> and... Uh, a lot of people kind of credit with like marking a true demarcation point between uh, the Hollywood Westerns that preceded it and the ones that came after. It's a, a revisionist Western. A lot of people are fond of calling it. This is, a, as Noah said earlier, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. He plays William Money, who is a sort of a reformed gunfighter with a, a wife who's passed away, who's now living on a pig farm. Um, with his children and just trying to make sure that hog fever doesn't spread to the other side of the stable. Like, I don't think if, he's going to succeed, though. I think well, that's fever. kind of the point, is that he needs the money and the pig farm is failing. Yes. So um, when uh, the Schofield kid comes by and is right. just like, hey, help me kill these two guys that cut up these prostitutes in yep. the nearby town. Yep. Uh, it sounds better than pig farming. Uh, and the town is Big Whiskey, Wyoming, um, which is run in a much more interesting way than I remember by Little Bill Daggett, uh, played by Gene Hackman. Again, I was getting it confused with The Quick and the Dead or like they meld together in my mind as him as sort of just this like, uh, you know, Baron-like figure who holds complete dominion over the town. Really more of sort of like an influencer, call me if you need me kind of lawman who gradually becomes like more and more centralized as he believes the town is threatened to be overrun by hired guns and assassins whom he harbors great antipathy for. Um, and then 
becomes the antagonist of this movie. One of the things I just love about this script and Little Bill Daggett is you very rarely see a movie evolve its villain the way Unforgiven does. Usually the villain is a known quantity, and that's just not true with Little Bill. Yeah, I really like those little like grandstand he like sort of moments he does before his like act of supreme judgment or violence. Yeah. Uh, is he'll be like, you know, we got we got villains down in Kansas, we got villains in Missouri, yeah. we got villains down in Cheyenne, but we do not have villains here in Big Whiskey. I was laugh chuckling to myself being like, uh, you know, when everybody from the town comes out to watch, he really kind of Howard Dean's about uh, all the different places that villains right. hail from. We're going to, we're going to Ohio. <laughs> uh, yeah. So as you said, money, uh, and then his old friend, uh, Ned Logan played by Morgan Freeman, who's also retired from the game, uh, go and I really like Morgan Freeman in this. Me too. Try to collect. He hasn't bounty. gone like full. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. He's like still sort of like playing characters with nuance instead of him just being God. Sure, sure. You want to say your piece about this movie being slow so I can get mad at you? Sure. I thought this movie was pretty slow. How dare you, sir? <laughs> it definitely like has that. So it's William Goldman, isn't it? No. It's not? No, it's. Uh... Uh, that's, that's absolute power. I confuse the two. David Webb Peoples wrote the script for this. Oh, who wrote, interesting, who wrote Blade Runner and 12 Monkeys. Oh, weird. Um, this movie is definitely like trying for a William Goldman kind of thing. I would agree with that. And it has a lot of characters monologuing about things. And then when they sort of get somewhere interesting, like especially with English Bob, um, played by Richard Harris, the late Richard Harris. One of my favorite supporting performances ever full stop see i i can't i can't i can't get my mind around that because i he's not on screen long enough he like does his one note kind of like i'm english and if you guys had a queen here they like wouldn't shoot your president and then he says that like two or three times and then he gets the shit beaten out of him and then he doesn't speak for a whole scene and then he's gone like he has no arc really it's sort of like an annoying Buster Scruggs episode or something where you meet like one douchebag who then like is out douched by like another douchebag and then like leaves and that's the end of that chapter. But for this one, it's like, why is this story in the middle of this? If is it only to give us the sense of little Bill and like how he like won't put up with anything so that when you get Clint Eastwood in the town, like you, you sort of know what's coming even though you don't? Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. I'll have that 32, Bob. Now, little Bill, <clears throat> you will leave me at the mercy of my enemies. Enemies, Bob. You've been talking about the Queen again? On Independence Day? <laughs> I would say that you're I think you're over prescribing a little bit on what essentially is a great bit part when you texted me that like this movie wastes Richard Harris I wanted to respond like that's like saying Big Lebowski wastes John Turturro it's like a heat check that's only there but to John te- Turturro has like a whole arc to him no he does not but you see him from the beginning to the end like I would say like change 
as sort of his philosophy and his relationship to the dude at least. This one, he never comes in contact with Clint Eastwood. He's not meant to inflect that character. As you said, he's meant to inflect little Bill. Because what I think happens here is, yeah, you get this sort of grandstanding uh, person who in this revisionist Western way is interested in his real-time legacy within this genre. And he critically is followed around by this very smug dime store journalist played by Saul Rubinak. um, He's great. I liked him. He's fantastic. Who is then after uh, Hackman kicks the shit out of him which one of the things i love is that like basically he beats the words out of him which is essentially worse than death for this character Um, but hackman picks up the biographer and begins to tell him the stories and one of the ways that daggett evolves is that you see the way in which like ego and publicity is a radicalizing force for that character he was a guy who would settle some town disputes. He really wants to build his house. It's fine. But once someone reminds him of what a tough old son of a bitch he used to be and what stories he has, it's like money taking a swig of the liquor again. Once someone reminds him what a big, important old person he was, he it begins to inhabit that skin again to his own like death. Like I think that's the point of the Bob character. That's interesting. It's really more, it's less about Bob and more about Beauchamp then. I I think that, yeah, you could argue that Bob is just a way to get Beauchamp into the town. Um, but it, and I then think it, it's really the writer that makes him, and there's that great scene too where he takes the gun and English Bob is just too afraid to take the oh, gun and shoot yeah. him. Yep. That's great. And I love the thing too where they, he keeps saying the book that Beauchamp has written is called The Duke of Death. Right. And he keeps saying The Duck of the Death. The Duck of Death. Yeah. And I think at first he like just can't read and that's like kind of a joke of the movie. But I think it's also meant to sort of undercut English Bob. You realize at a certain point he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. Right. Um, and then tells the story that like becomes critical to the movie again, which is kind of like, you know, it's weird because it's both like anti-mythology but like leans into archetypes where like all the stories that bob tells about like being a virtuosic gunman is like oh yeah they called that guy that guy that nickname because he had a big dick and everyone knew it and his gun exploded in his hand and that's why you should shoot straight instead of fast it's like that's what makes an interesting revisionist western is it's like it's anti-dime store it's like the the technology was bad the men were drunk they were fueled by rage. I think it's a fascinating movie in that way. It's fascinating. I think the little Bill's sort of what he finds honorable, and especially you brought up saying drunk, the idea that he just like abhors alcohol. And yes. people who, like every time he wants to undercut both um, Clint Eastwood or Richard Harris, he says like, and you were stinking drunk. Like as if to say like your heroism or your bravery was not earned because it was under the influence it was it was inauthentic or something yeah and but what's so fascinating i think is my big read on this movie is it's essentially a movie about a relapse right money confesses over and over again that like i'm not that guy i don't do that i'm not that guy i hate who i was please don't please don't you do a beauchamp thing and tell everybody about what i did to women and children and people everywhere um but then at the end of the day it's like the women uh the sex workers who were 
you know, dissatisfied with sort of like the cold capitalist recompense for like one of their friends being abused, which is like the ponies are not enough. What we want is hell. And it's like, well, money will bring it to you if you like get some of that brown liquor in his belly. Like you can see all the rage that you want to see, but like it's just going to be a blood soaked barroom floor, which is like exhilarating and badass. But if you get on the movie's level, it's also pretty disturbing. I also wonder what the read is on the fact that so what actually happens is this prostitute is her face gets cut up and it's like she has some serious cuts on her face. But like as the story sort of gets out into the small towns outside of Big Whiskey to sort of that this there's this thousand dollar payment due to the person who avenges this thing. I mean, it becomes that she was like like her hands and like her breasts were cut off. Right. And like, it becomes such a more violent crime. And I wonder if that like says something to the fact of like, you really need to like, what are the lengths that sort of the story needs to go for an addict to relapse? You know, like how far do we have to go to justify, you know, what the story is in order to like consider it, you know, authentic vengeance. Can it just be some scratches to the face or does it have to be all out, you know, black and white brutality? I think it's, I think it is really of a piece with a lot of what the movie's saying, right? It's like you have to, it takes such hyperbolic violence to draw us back to this genre, to draw money back to this genre. It's like, I think I love this movie because it is endlessly readable. I will grant you that, especially before the final blow up. There's like 15 minutes there where like Clint is like talking a little bit too much about like, I guess this is just what I have to do. And it's like, well, okay, got it. We got it. The physical performance is pretty humbling though. Like the fact that he can't get on the horse is pretty great. Totally. And like how covered with pig shit he is in the first couple of scenes. God damn it. I think this may be a well-made movie. Oh, it's definitely well-made. You just didn't enjoy yeah, watching it? I just don't know that I enjoyed, and I'm, you, you know me, I, I'm pretty like, in, enjoy like a critical read on, I like piecing things together. Yeah. But for this one, I just thought the, the pieces didn't make enough sense. And sure. Like if you're getting on a podcast with your buddy and you like have this thing in front of you to cut apart any way you see fit, like fine. It's an interesting talking point, but I think it's like a motion picture it didn't quite cohere in a way that made sense to me on an emotional level. So hmm. it's good, bad. Okay. Uh, I guess I can't get too upset at you for that, but I think this is a clear good, good. I love this movie. And I think it's it's also like full of actors who are teasing the fact that they're playing against type only to give you sort of the perverse thing that you want in the end, which is very satisfying. There's like at least, and Francis Fisher is great in this movie. There's at least like six or seven great performances um i also i can i can get in for some some planes and uh you know great western vistas so good good for me i didn't feel like there were that many like good like geography shots no that slow pan across the horizon you think Sidney pollock should have directed this movie and not the firm yes (laughs) the much vaunted yes i think i i do believe that should we move on to i think east Maybe they should have switched. Eastwood's The Firm and Pollock's Unforgiven could be pretty interesting. But this is definitely better, if we're talking about Hackman, Unforgiven's definitely better Hackman than 
Superman Hackman. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought us back. Unforgiven Hackman's some of the best Hackman there is. Yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll get on board with that. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Should we talk about The Firm? I would love to talk about The Firm. I feel like The Firm is a movie that has been calling our name since we started this show three or four years ago. I mean, I've certainly been suggesting it as much as I can. I think that's right. Yeah, we had a category on the sheet for a long time that was like, I wouldn't want to work at that law firm with Michael Clayton, the firm, and uh, something we could never name later. Because um, we already did uh, a Devil's Advocate. We've never done Devil's Advocate. Oh, th- damn it. We should have saved this one for I don't want to work at that law firm. We fucked up. Um, so we either end the show here or talk about Devil's Advocate for an hour after this. I'm I'm down for the latter. <laughs> okay. So the firm, 1993, of course, is a John Grisham adaptation. Unless I'm wrong, I hope I am not. I believe it is like the first major John Grisham Hollywood adaptation, um, which is quite a splash. This movie made an incredible amount of money when it came out. It was a giant hit in 1993, which is so explainable on the one hand. It has peak Tom Cruise, like right after A Few Good Men. Um, it has Gene Hackman. It has Ed Harris. It has Gene Triplehorn. It has Wilford Brimley. Um, it has so many people. The cast is incredible. Uh, it has a great director in Sidney Pollock, and yet is so um, the thing this this movie's reputation precedes it. It's that it's two hours and twenty five minutes for a movie about a law firm you know is corrupt from the first five. You think I'm talking about breaking the law? No, I'm just trying to figure out how far you want it bent. As far as you can without breaking it. That firm looks like a health hazard. That's four dead lawyers. None of them over the age of 45. Where are you guys? The FBI wouldn't have come after you if they didn't think they'd get to you. Now, what do you think made them think that? I have no idea. Well, they might know how important your young wife is to you. Anything's possible. I'll tell you one thing. If those guys at the stake joint were feds, you better watch out for them. We might be misreading McDear. You've got nothing to be suspicious about. I get paid to be suspicious when I got nothing to be suspicious about. Yeah, you know from the moment they like write him a check for 15% more or whatever than like any other law firm and they're in like fucking Memphis or whatever, that yeah. this is not an on-the-level law firm. But then Tom Cruise like really does well in selling it to both Gene Triplehorn and us as the audience as this recently graduated top-of-his-class Harvard Law student should move down to Memphis and fucking take the five-bedroom house and the Mercedes-Benz and all of it and, you know, run. I mean, big ups to Memphis. Like, this made me think we should set more movies in Memphis. It's an interesting visual town. The tram chase is really good when we eventually interminably make it around <laughs> to that. It's on uh, Mud Island. The soundtrack is, uh, is like, very kind of like, like oh, yeah, did... 
was just inspired by Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis. This uh, this like little piano riff over the top of this. It's interesting that it's only piano. The whole score, it's yeah. just piano, which gets like a little annoying. Just a hair, but especially in the two and a half hour mark. The problem, I yeah, I think my line in this movie is like I don't understand why Sidney Pollock thought this was a a John le Carré like rat's nest of corruption that was like every strand was so intriguing as it glommed onto every other one. Like this is a straightforward story, man. <laughs> the movie about a corrupt law firm uh, that is killing its lawyers. And it takes Tom Cruise so long to realize it that they're like, you know, laundering money for the mafia. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like weird that seven people have been murdered at this law firm in the past seven years. Yeah. And that our biggest client happens to be the mob. Right. But other than that, things seem on the up and up. Know, There's fun. all kinds of these great gatherings and they've given us so much free shit. It's great. Right. I think the big whiff in this movie both because it adds like another 20 minutes to it and because it totally doesn't make a lot of sense is the gary Busey private investigator eddie lomax section so much i forgot about nothing other than to give the guy from breaking bad a limp and to introduce tom cruise to holly hunter who's like his confidant but that's just lazy screenwriting to me. I feel sure. like you could have introduced this woman with an axe to grind in any other. She could have been one of the wives of like the guys who were just murdered. Could she could have been anything. She just needs to like copy some files ultimately in the plot. Like we don't right. need her to be, you know, this jilted secretary of this murdered private investigator. <laughs> yeah, who who's like, like falling for Tom Cruise's brother. Uh, yeah. Played by uh, Edward uh, Edward Murrow. Basically, the movie gives Gary Busey, like hopped up Gary Busey, an excuse to try to steal some scenes only to get Holly Hunter into the movie. And she's charming uh, and, you know, and so winning, just like she is in all these, um, in all of her performances, but especially in this time. Like at the end, it almost pays off where Davis Rutheran is like, I love your mouth. And she's like, well, that's not even my best feature. Like she, she's great, but it's just a long, long way to get there. But even that scene is a microcosm for this movie. That scene is perfectly with, you know, him complimenting her mouth, her saying it's not her best feature and then cutting. But because for some reason, the script like just doesn't quite trust itself. It then David Strathairn says, well, what is your best quality? Yeah. Like that's obviously the implied question there. Just right. cut away. And then of course after that question she doesn't answer it. It cuts away. Yeah. It's like each scene is like a third too long. Yes, and there's so much Ed Harris being like this computer makes me angry. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, it's true. You're right. So, like, yeah, we could extrapolate that scene into being like, yeah, this movie is 33.3 repeating percent too much all over the place. Um, Which makes it fun to talk about. I mean, Cruise is just, like, he's pretty perfect and as, like, so many other Tom Cruise movies of this era, has no idea how to deal with how weird he is. Like, that was that's my big takeaway, is that pathologically, Mitch McDeer is such an interesting flawed character that no tom cruise movie uh whether it be mission impossible whether it be cocktail like not until uh 
the Jesus, the Kubrick one, Eyes Wide Shut, is any movie prepared to be like, Tom Cruise, you are weird. And I'm going to dig into why. Like, there's a reason in this movie that he cheats on his wife with a woman in peril, right? Yes. There has to be. But the script has no inkling that that's the case. Um, everything is just chalked up to like, I'm a lawyer, man. I do law. So like this is just has a very high place in the history of Tom Cruise movies in which he's very strange, but like the movie refuses to look into that. That's what I liked so much about American Made, I think, is that it Ooh. reminded me a lot of this movie where he like gets into something because of the financial gain of it and then like tries to mold this lifestyle like onto his sort of weird you know, running around, hair getting sweaty charm (laughs) until he absolutely like has to pull something crazy out of his ass to make sure that his family's okay. Yeah. His relationship with Jean is weird where she, where he sprints after her down the driveway is weird. Um, The fact that he can't sprinting so hard. He can't give anyone, even himself, like a straight answer about why he got into law. That's part of sort of his contentious first meeting. Well, but then Avery Tolar, played by Gene Hackman, we'll get into that in a second, accuses him of being an idealist. And then he says, no, it just cost me my job. And I became anti-big government and pro Bendini Lambert and Locke. Or um, a great law firm name, by the way, though. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, there are many, like many. the one from uh, Michael Clayton. What is that one? Oh, Kenner Bach and Ledeen actually very similar to Bandini Lambert and Locke in both uh, alliteration and assonance. Um, so let's talk about Gene Hackman, shall we? He's really cool. And I think the movie positions him really well because at least I was fooled for a while into believing that he is the big bad, right? That this is the, he's the absolute power so to speak in this movie where it's just like yeah then hackman will be like i believe in corruption you think your average juror is king solomon no but he turns out to be this very kind of um sad manipulative but well modulated character like the whole their first lunch where he's like and i should tell you mitch mcdeer the firm frowns on drinking during work hours and mcdeer's like great i'll have a nice tea and he says well great then i'll have a bombay martini and then has another in the same lunch, he's like, well, no, he's not the big bad. He's the guy who's, you know, made his corrupt peace with this the same way that presumably Mitch McDeer will if he works there for another 30 years. But he's just done it through depression and sleaze and booze. He's kind of a Trumpian Willie Loman, where he's just like figured out pretty quickly that this like things are not what they seemed when he was like a hotshot lawyer, uh, law school graduates, and then he figured out the way to like keep his sanity sort of throughout this whole thing was to, you know, have his little breaking of the rules, but ultimately towing the company line until he realizes he's just like too old to do it or he sees himself in this younger tom cruise character and is just like i i can't with this anymore especially after sort of you know coming in between him and his wife and say what you will about the plausibility or the necessity of the turn where 
Gene Triplehorn tries to buy Mitch time by flying to the Caymans to seduce Avery because he's been hitting on her the whole movie. But the scene in which after uh, several uh, expensive rums, they go back to the room and he's drugged and it's like, oh my God, how long is it going to take for him to pass out? Because like he thinks they're going to sleep together. And he does the thing where he's like very softly, depressively saying like, these buttons are too small. I could never get them off. And then a second later he goes, you're not being truthful. Um, why, are you, why are you here? <laughs> He's able to kind of modulate in this way that like, I'm going to go back to Duvall or Tommy Lee Jones. They can't quite do that. They can't make all the different weird levels of this like um, really horny, sad old man who's about to pass out from roofies. Um, they can't play every level of his craziness, but Hackman can. I would do that, but I could never do that. Buttons are too small. Requires terrible dexterity. What are you doing here? What do you mean? I mean, exactly what did you come here for? I, I thought I was invited. You're not being truthful. Why are you doing this? Because I'm sick. And don't you feel like in the next scene too, he like almost is looking for an out in that he like wants to believe that they did sleep together and he just like can't remember it because he's drunk. Yes. And he almost wants to like take on like he'd rather take on the guilt of like knowing he broke up a young marriage than feeling like the slip was gotten on him. I think that that's a good read. I think maybe if we think about it this way, the, the, the depth and ambiguity in Hackman's performance is maybe the best excuse this movie has not to be as straightforward as it obviously could be. Um, I'm not saying that like it shouldn't be shorter and shouldn't be more to the point, but the Hackman character is where it kind of twists and turns into like, what does corruption mean here i'm just more interested in the hackman cruise relationship and i feel like you have like that good sort of chapter in the caymans initially with sunny caps and then you have like them not really talking about the fact that they clearly know they both know that he like slept with this woman on the beach and then they kind of like bump into each other a bit like back in the states but then it becomes Gene Triplehorn's sort of dance with him and Tom Cruise is sort of out of it. And then she just sort of becomes his proxy by like the last scene in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're kind of left with Wilfred Brimley, who is hysterical in his own right. That monologue he has where he shows him the photos and he's like, this is not fucking Mitch. These are intimate acts. Oral, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> never wanted to hear wilford brimley say intimate acts oral <laughs> ever <laughs> i think it's funny to see like how he's so clearly like pretending that he's like on mitch's side yeah. to be so threatening um also his mustache is out of this world he looks like at any moment he could get up from this monologue and just like dive into the lake behind them and like eat a salmon <laughs> Is that a walrus reference? Yeah, just like okay. a big sort of salmon-eating mammal. So many memorable monologues, though. Uh, 
Like she, but I she, like the idea that this the only real contingency plan that this law firm has is like this sixty five year old <laughs> obese guy who doesn't like have a good enough sight that he doesn't shoot his own people. Yeah. I was gonna I feel like they've thought of everything about entrapping their new recruits down to home wiretaps and speed dial, but they never thought to hire security who could run like an eight minute mile, who was in pickup basketball right. shape. I mean that Albarno guy really hoofs it over the <laughs> Mud Island Bridge. That's right, the guy who ended up playing Jigsaw and Saw. Um, oh he God. does his best. Uh, he tries but i do think though that like that is a suspension of disbelief issue whereas like this firm's all powerful like unless you push over their two 50 year old (laughs) guards and then push over their 65 year old guard and hit them with your attache case (laughs) absolutely oh man i kind of love that about this that's a very bad good quality of this movie um you don't think this movie's like i mean we don't have to get there already but it's got some quintessential like TNT Saturday afternoon oh, bad goodness to it. I would agree. I mean, with commercials, this movie must be a whole day of programming. Oh, brother. It's probably the same length as watching like Titanic on country music television. Um, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I think we could probably turn toward a rating. Can't, don't you think? Uh, I think it's bad good. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear bad good. Um, it is really long, which normally pushes us more in a good, bad direction, but it's also like crazy and, um, you know, there's enough like, it's not boring. It's, not it's boring. just long. There's enough of those side roads where you're like, I forgot that Holly Hunter was even in this movie or like, I forgot we were going to have a big moment with Hackman later on that keep it watchable. Two hours in, they're introducing Gary Busey. <laughs> What's this movie up to? Oh man. Yeah. So that's actually a pretty easy, bad, good. I think at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's available on Hulu if you want to watch it right now. There it is. Um, all right, Noah. So let me ask you this. So what do we think about Gene? Oh, go ahead. I'm going to ask you, is it a good or bad thing that he retired before he could play the angry Secretary of Defense in a Marvel movie? I could see him being like a sad like saxophonist or something who... like never really made it because of some reason. Well, that's, and then he like opens the nightclub that Tom Cruise comes to in Collateral 2. That's the epilogue of uh, the conversation you're talking about. There's right, a reason you exactly. can picture him with the saxophone. The conversation, by the way, uh, pr- might be my favorite single Gene Hackman performance. Um, he's so that's great. That's a good that one. Movie. That's a great movie, too. Underrated Francis Ford Coppola as well. Mm-hmm. People don't like talk about that movie enough when they talk about him or Gene Hackman. Um, what was the question? I, I've forgotten. Do you think it's? Do you think he retired at the right time? Yeah, I think retirement is good, especially for actors like this, because like you're you're only gonna get sloppy. You know, if he maybe like did, because what is he gonna end up doing? He's gonna be like on Netflix with Chevy Chase and like uh, what's his name doing like Last Laugh or whatever. Sure, or Kaminsky. Method. Like he's not gonna get in, he's not gonna get any serious acting work. He's just gonna get like you know the baby boomer comedies or book club or whatever sure sure i mean he was already sort of like slinking into that with heartbreakers um and i mean i think even welcome to mooseport is like a ridiculous fucking movie about like an egotistical president who has to run for mayor right 
which is just calling back to better roles. That's the thing that like these actors do. They just start taking on roles that remind them of roles that like got them good write-ups. Yep. And I think, yeah, after a kind of middling enemy of the state's pretty good. Sure. But I think anywhere after that, uh, the 2000s were not good to him, other than the Royal Tenenbaums, of course. And maybe like I'll throw a little love on Behind Enemy Lines, which is like pretty quintessential bad good yeah. action with a Soviet terror. Um, I think that the the thing that I'll circle back to is it's which I kind of made the point earlier, but if you think about Little Bill Daggett, Popeye Doyle, famously a French connection, and then his character from Mississippi Burning, he's very good at playing like lawmen who are going too far, but then again, leaving it up to the movie about how to position, how to use that. Is the obsession worthy of retribution? Is it worthy of just like a dark-hearted, silent ending like French connection? Like he would just play these really interesting, really flawed characters. And then the movie would be like, well, little Bill Daggett's a villain. Or it's like, no, Popeye Doyle's a hero. But if you break down their behavior and their value system, it's basically the same. Gene Hackman did a similar thing. Um, that's just like a mark of an actor who I think like really trusts in what great writing is. Well, buddy, I hope that uh, maybe 11 years from now we can do the uh, the best protagonist of Gene Hackman when he turns... 100 i hope he survives absolutely i hope he comes back and does like a weird movie i or like some bit part hey man i think new mexican e-bikes keep you young i think he'll be around for a while uh well folks this brings us to the end of uh of another be real thank you to you our fine listeners and our wonderful sponsors california college of the arts and the Converse College Low Residency MFA. Uh, thank you to our fellow shows here on the Playlist Podcast Network, Adjust Your Tracking, Over Under Movies Podcast, and Indie Beat. You'll want to listen to them. Uh, subscribe to the network in general and follow everyone on social. Chime in if you feel a certain way that's not too, uh, you know, combative please not not don't send us combative tweets, but we're always happy to hear from you. Uh, and I'm always happy to talk to you, buddy. And I, you. This has been... A lot of fun. Damn. That's all. Are you crazy? That's all. Baby, I am dying. <laughs>